Hi, this is Dr. Christopher Perrin, and welcome to this podcast episode, which is a part of the Christopher Perrin Show, which you can listen to on TrueNorth.fm and a lot of other places. You can also view these videos of the podcast at the YouTube channel of Classical Academic Press. I've been discussing the cardinal virtues and then moved to the theological virtues, and you might know that the theological virtues are faith, hope, and love. And so I've already published one podcast on faith, but there'll be some others like this one. We looked at faith, and we talked about faith or belief as always involving believing something told to us by someone. And we also talked about how to believe something is not to be forced to believe. It can't be by coercion. It has to be something that we freely recognize as true, represented to us by a person, and that we will to believe. And that's what we're going to discuss today, this element of faith that always involves a choice or our will. Now, you probably can think of times when you have believed something to be true, told to you by someone, and yet still did not take that further step to will to believe. If you go back to your childhood, can you remember, if you've been taught to swim, how you were taught to swim, say, by a parent? I can remember my father uh, teaching me to swim and asking me to, to jump to him from the side of the pool. And this is after being with him in the water and, and uh, learning some other things. Maybe I was able to dog paddle a bit, but to actually get freeborn in the air, not knowing just how it might all work out, hearing my father say, it's going to be okay. I'm going to catch you. Jump, Chris. Jump. I'll catch you looking at him, smiling, totally intent, focused on me, I did believe that he would catch me. I did believe he was trustworthy. I believed him as a warrantor. But then I had to choose to jump. Kierkegaard is quoted by Joseph Pieper in his great book, Faith, Hope, and Love. And Kierkegaard says, There is much that one man can do for another, but give him belief he cannot. Pieper says, belief can never be half-hearted. One can believe only if one wishes to. There may be plenty of compelling arguments for a man's credibility, but no argument can force us to believe him. And then Newman, John Henry Newman says that belief is something other than the result of a logical process. He says, it is precisely not a conclusion from premises. Now, Hasn't this happened to you as well or to someone you know? Maybe someone is considering a marriage. And, you know, the more that this person thinks about uh, marrying, say, this woman, they seem to be fairly convinced that this would be a terrific match. And all of the arguments have been made. All of the data is present. This would be a wonderful woman to marry. But will this person make that decision, or maybe it's something a little less profound like taking a job. Everything seems to be lined up. You think the employer represents a great company, great colleagues, but you decide to, to, to take the job. Or what about enrolling 
your child, say, in a good classical school. You can imagine a parent bringing a child to a school, visiting the school, meeting children, meeting teachers, meeting administrators and leaders and other parents, looking at the facility and the curriculum, observing some, observing some classes and thinking, this is a terrific school. Everything that has been said to me is compelling. But then you still must choose to enroll. And there are times when we just don't will to believe. So what we see here is that logic and argumentation does have its limits. Here's what Pieper says. It is one thing to regard what someone else has said as interesting, clever, important, even magnificent. The product of genius or absolutely true. We may feel compelled to think and say all these things with utter sincerity, but it is quite a different matter to accept precisely the same statements in the way of belief. In order for this other matter, belief, to come about, a further step is necessary. A free assent of will must be performed. Belief rests upon volition. We must decide. He says this as well. Note that this is not the revealed or demonstrated truth of a matter that describes what happens to the believer. Rather, he's motivated by the insight that it is good to regard the subject matter as true and real on the strength of someone else's testimony. But it is the will, not the cognition, that acknowledges the good. So, if you're in a classical school or you've learned the arts of logic and rhetoric, you've probably learned that you can win an argument, but not win a person. And hasn't this happened to us all? Either because we've given a cogent argument and still not persuaded a person to change his or her beliefs or actions, or perhaps we have been the recipient of an absolutely persuasive, cogent, powerful argument, but it wasn't persuasive enough for us to change our minds. We've all been in these places, and it reveals that, well, logic is not sufficient and it's because for belief because our will is involved. And our wills are mysterious. Why is it that one person presented with the same argument will believe and another person won't? I'm reminded of that famous verse from the Gospel of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever would believe in him. Whoever believes in him would have, not perish, but have eternal life. There's a will involved there. Not everyone wills to believe. Do we believe in things simply because we hope they will be true? No. The will is exercised not toward the content of belief or the act itself, but it's directed toward the person who is the witness, toward the warrantor. It has the property of wanting affirming, loving what already exists. This is Pieper speaking. He goes on to say, love is participation in and consummation of the beloved's being. As it is, love is conceived as the primal act of the will, as the fundamental principle of all volition and the imminent source of every manifestation of the will. So he's saying here that when we believe we are loving, we, we are affirming something that is true, represented in a person. Now, 
This isn't common for us to think about belief involving love. But Pieper believes this, and he articulates it very well. I'm reminded of the Latin word voluntas. Now, volovolare in Latin means I, I will, to, to will something, to wish for something. And we have the word volition that comes from volovolare. But there's also this noun, voluntus, and we, you, we get the word voluntary from this. If you are a volunteer, it doesn't mean you must do something. You can choose to. You, it's, it's a matter of your volition. I want to do this, so I will volunteer. Well, voluntas in Latin can mean willing, wish, but it can also mean desire, inclination, pleasure, affection, or delight. It's what the Jerome used this word to translate uh, Psalm 1 when he said, the blessed man delights in the law of the Lord in which he meditates day and night. And the word that he uses to translate delight in Hebrew, the Latin word he uses is voluntas. In lege domini voluntas eus, et in lege domini meditator die et nocte. His delight, his voluntas is in the law of the Lord. Just note that even in the Latin, to delight in something means to choose it. The believer thus seeks and finds a communion, Pieper says, of spiritual union when the believer believes in the warrantor, the person speaking, the father saying, jump, come to me. There's a love relationship already present that I wish to affirm and love the father who is saying jump when I choose to jump. Now, this reminds me as well of some wonderful words from Augustine in his small little book on the education of catechumens, the uninstructed, small little book that you can find on the internet. Augustine says something very wonderful and beautiful about teaching that involves love and sympathy between teacher and student. And you should hear him in his own words. Here's what he says. Let us then adapt ourselves to our students. Already, you see uh, an attitude of care, do you not? Let us then adapt ourselves to our students with a love, which is at once the love of a brother, of a father, and of a mother. When once we are linked to them in heart, the old familiar things will seem new to us. So great is the influence of a sympathetic mind, meaning that mind of the student that's in sympathy with our mind as a teacher. So great is the influence of a sympathetic mind that when our students are affected by us as we speak and we by them as they learn, we dwell in each other and thus both they, as it were, speak within us what they hear while we after a fashion learn in them what we teach. Beautifully expressed. Teaching students renews the love of, of an idea, of knowledge, of skills that are when they are, when they are taught to students. The, the teacher discovers again the delight of those things which he has learned and that have become familiar. There's a sense in which the teacher is defamiliarized, becomes a child again when teaching students who speak in him even as he speaks in them in a kind of mutual sympathetic indwelling. 
He says, the more we love those to whom we speak, the more we want them to like what we speak, and so the more careful we are in speaking to them what they need. Note the love relationship here, the sympathetic fellowship and love between student and teacher. This is at the core of belief, trusting in the teacher, the warrantor, or anyone who has something good to give you in terms of a testimony. This is, this is at the core. Uh, put this, uh, people puts it this way, the good towards which the will of the believer is directed is communion with the eyewitness or knower who says it is so. And Newman sums it up by saying this, we believe because we love. What if your classical school or homeschooling uh, school was, was characterized by this kind of sympathy, fellowship, and love from teacher to student? People writes, everyone who speaks to another without falseness, even if what he says is not at all confidential, is actually extending a hand and offering communion. And he who listens to him in good faith is accepting the offer and taking the hand. Mutual trust and free interchange of thoughts produces a unique type of community. In such community, he who is hearing participates in the knowledge of the knower. And here Pieper reflects on what it was like in post-World War II Germany, when Germany was rebuilding and needing to and needing trust from citizen to citizen. And he describes how lovely it is when neighbor can speak to neighbor, offering something that is true and good to, to, the, to, to the neighbor. And how just to receive in kind of civil, respectful dis- discourse, the good things given to us in speech and conversation from our neighbors is a kind of communal affair. And therefore, it should be the case in a school as well. Our teachers, our fellow students, ourselves, all engaging and bearing witness to things we've come to know as true, with our friends receiving eagerly uh, with expectation whatever it is that we would have to give, and we eagerly receiving whatever it is they would give us. And because we can't know everything by direct experience, we need to have truth the truths of the world, communicated to us by others, by our friends, by our neighbors, by our teachers and classmates. Pieper sums it up by saying, this kind of disposition to be ready to receive, affirm, and love the truth that others bring to us by way of testimony is a kind of advertence. Uh, It's a word that we don't use too often. You know the word advertisement. Well, advertere in Latin means to be turned towards something. So I guess a good ad makes your attention turn toward it. We talk about things that are inadvertent and we talk about averting our eyes. Well, advert means to turn toward. So advertence is the believer, Pieper says, placed in a condition of seeing something that would never be attainable by his own unaided sight of seeing with the eyes of him who sees directly. This miracle, however, is the fruit of loving advertence. Not only is belief based upon the turning of the will toward the witness, it is that very turning of the will that makes belief. So, maybe we can begin to think, therefore, 
of what it would mean to have students who were advertent, turned toward, eagerly waiting and ready to affirm truth as it's brought to them by any good testifier, teacher, student, or parent. Well, I hope this has been helpful to you. I'll be back next time with another episode in which we'll continue our study of faith or belief. In that episode, we'll look at how seeing and knowing are primary to belief or always have precedence over belief. I'll see you then. Thanks for viewing or listening. I'd like to thank you for watching or listening to The Christopher Perrin Show. And to do that, I can give you a coupon code that will give you 10% off on anything that you might care to order at classicalacademicpress.com. And the coupon code is simply CPSHOW. Thanks again for listening or watching.